KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, the end of abortion in 26 states will be deadly for many poor women, especially poor women of color. We turn to law professor Michelle Goodwin, who reviews the history of forced pregnancy under the slave regime in antebellum America, and shows how it was banned by the 13th Amendment prohibition of involuntary servitude. That's later in the show. Also, how will the war in Ukraine end? Anatole Levin will comment. He's author of the book, Ukraine and Russia. But first, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, many of our friends are complaining about Joe Biden. His approval ratings are terrible. There's a new Monmouth University poll released Tuesday that shows that just 36% of Americans approve of the job Biden is doing. That's his lowest rate to date in the survey. And it's almost as low as Donald Trump's low, which was 34%. And that came after the January 6th insurrection. Obama never got below 40% approval. Bill Clinton's lowest was 37. So this is really historic low territory, at least for a Democrat. And, and this is a candidate who got more votes than any candidate in the history of America last in, in, in November 2020. And the president who has made it clear that he really wants to run for re-election in 2024. Well, let's look back for a minute at his victory, which was decisive in November 2020. Uh, but, you know, some of that vote invariably was against Donald Trump rather than necessarily pro Joe Biden. There's sort of a something with Biden that I think by now is fairly clear, which is that he doesn't really command attention on key issues. Uh, I would point out, by the way, I mean, not only is the economic dysfunctions that we're experiencing by no means uh, peculiar to the United States, inflation is, is raging pretty much everywhere, the supply chain is screwed up globally. I would point out that the euro is at its lowest level relative to the dollar uh, in 20 years. And what that means is that uh, the Europe investors are thinking America is in far better shape economically than they think Europe is. So, I mean, Joe Biden bears, bears the burdens of uh, a, a lot of things that no national leader can completely control. Uh, the line about King Lear describing himself as more sinned against than sinning. Uh, there's something to that. But by the same token, Biden doesn't really command the discussion on very many issues. And it's not just these issues where what he can do is, is somewhat limited. But uh, he didn't command the discussion even on things like Build Back Better. That was somehow rather uh, hijacked by Joe Manchin. There's a way in which he just does not really establish his centrality even to the issues he cares most about. Our friend Mark Cooper asked us to imagine an alternative scenario for what a different president might have done right after the Supreme Court decision repealing Roe v. Wade. Mark Cooper says, imagine the night of this decision. Joe Biden comes on live from the Oval Office. 
he denounces the court. He tells us that 75% of the country opposes this move, that it will not stand. He declares a national emergency. He orders the immediate construction of 30 abortion clinics to be erected on federal territory in every state that has restricted abortion. He announces a $1 billion emergency fund to support women and girls who need to travel to exercise their rights. Doesn't even matter if this would have been feasible, Mark Cooper says. The key point would have been to do what you're talking about. Take a leadership position. Let's deal with the first, very first thing on Mark's list, which isn't even, uh, it shouldn't even be an issue, and that is address the nation from the Oval Office. <laughs> yes. Biden doesn't do that. Yes. He doesn't do that in prime time. He goes and makes speeches during the daytime uh, to which... 1% of the American public at, at best uh, is aware of and pays attention to. Not only <laughs> does Mark make a whole slew of good suggestions, but even just setting the venue and the time he recommends seems to be something that Biden avoids. And I, you have to wonder, I'm afraid, you have to wonder if his advisors don't think he's up to giving primetime addresses from the Oval Office. Another recent example is uh, guns, the July 4th massacre in suburban Chicago. Biden did make a statement. Uh, he said, quote, Jill and I are shocked by the senseless gun violence that has yet again brought grief to an American community on this Independence Day. There is much more work to do, and I'm not going to give up fighting the epidemic of gun violence, close quote. In contrast, the governor of Illinois, J.B. Pritzker, said, if you're angry today, I'm here to tell you, be angry. I'm furious. I'm furious that yet more innocent lives were taken by gun violence. And he added, there are going to be people who say that today, July 4th, is not the day, that now is not the time to talk about guns. I'm here to tell you that there is no better day and no better time than right here and right now, close quote. An example of another Democrat. Yeah, well, uh, clearly, as the media at large has been noticing, there's uh, a lot of discontent at Biden's, again, inability to command any discussion uh, with, uh, with really serious action. And again, this is true about his own initiatives. Uh, it wasn't like he went on uh, TV from the Oval Office in prime time to make the case for Build Back Better. He did a lot of negotiating with Joe Manchin, which ended in nothing. I also want to talk about um, the ad that Gavin Newsom ran on July 4th. I guess this ran on Fox News. Gavin Newsom appears on, t on the screen and he says, it's Independence Day, so let's talk about what's going on in America. Freedom is under attack, he says, and he names Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis' estate, as an example of a place where he says abortion, free speech, and voting rights are issues on which Republicans are trying to, quote, take your freedom, close quote. Now, that is going one step beyond the governor of Illinois. He is attacking the Republicans on the big picture of what is happening in America right now. Uh, Gavin Newsom clearly is staking out some political turf here. He is staking out political turf. If Donald Trump is not the Republican nominee, right now the most likely choice for the Republicans would be Ron DeSantis. 
And Gavin Newsom is positioning himself, not so much with Florida swing voters, but with the Democratic electorate that is looking for this kind of response. Uh, by the way, I, you know, there are reasons to think Newsom is not exactly the model candidate to win over white working class voters <laughs> yes, I... uh, in, his, in his own somewhat dumpier way. Pritzker might be, uh, just because he doesn't look like, a, you know, a cool guy. Although for now, what Newsom and Pritzker are doing is both politically smart in terms of establishing themselves nationally with the national democratic electorate. And just when you thought things couldn't get worse, the Supreme Court on the final day of its term last week the right-wing majority announced they had ruled in a case about the FDA severely cutting its regulatory powers as well as those of other government agencies, which everyone sees is a, a hammer blow against the federal government's ability to do something about global warming. Well, that was actually a, a ruling in West Virginia versus EPA, not FDA. EPA. Yeah, that was to cut back on what the right has long complained is the administrative state. Of course, you know, in saying Congress should do it, A, Congress can't do anything in its current state, and B, it's not like Congress has the expertise to get into the weeds that uh, administrative agencies are created precisely to do. What it is, is just another way simply of weakening the government and letting the private sector run amok which is the uh, deep desire of uh, American conservatives, and including those in the Supreme Court. Of course, there is some alternative to the private sector running amok, and that is state regulations, especially in a place like California, the fifth biggest economy of the, in the world, and very committed to regulating emissions and doing something about global warming. Yeah. So uh, keep in mind, this the particular case was West Virginia v. Yes. EPA. Yes. Uh, there's obviously only so much one state, even a state as big and influential as California, can do on the issue of the global climate crisis. You need the whole planet and you need the whole nation as part of the whole planet. And that's what this ruling specifically made sure that it wasn't likely to happen. And... I'm not done yet. There's more. The court, oh, there's more. The court ended with a, what I could only be regarded as a grand finale, saying that next year it will take up the independent state legislature doctrine. This is this fringe right-wing proposal that would empower state legislatures to run federal elections. It's, it's the Trump fake elector scheme made legal, where Republican-led states could overrule their own voters and send their own slates of electors to uh, Washington uh, to decide uh, who, who is going to be the next president in 2024. Yeah, this was sort of like uh, a, a studio that uh, releases only horror movies, giving your coming attractions. That's what the court was doing <laughs> yeah. uh, in that. And it's it's not simply, which is sort of the extreme example that you gave of a legislature asserting uh, its power over the voters in, in, in a presidential election. But it's saying that uh, courts, the Supreme Court of the in each of the 50 states cannot overrule uh, the, what a legislature does, let's say, on districting, because it violates the constitution of that state. 
in other words, it really kind of undermines federalism and replaces not the rule of states, but the rule of gerrymandered Republicans uh, as the decisive factor uh, in, in election matters. Now, s- switching to the upcoming midterms, uh, I saw some really interesting polling results from Georgia. The midterm elections are, are in four months, almost exactly four months from uh, today. The, Georgia has that Senate race between R- Reverend Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker. Right now, the best poll shows Warnock 10 points ahead of Herschel Walker. While in the governor's race, Stacey Abrams is tied exactly even with Brian Kemp. Now, this is fascinating because Warnock is running against a candidate handpicked by Trump, and Stacey Abrams is challenging a incumbent who stood up to Trump. This is pretty interesting. It's pretty interesting. Uh, it's not clear yet whether that poll is an outlier or uh, reflective of a shift. Certainly, uh, Herschel Walker, like many of the candidates whom uh, uh, Trump has endorsed, uh, brings a slew of baggage, or to humanize that perhaps more, of hitherto unacknowledged illegitimate children he has sired. (laughs) It's called big. uh, Which is not usually considered uh, an asset uh, at election time and does not come across as a guy who is really all that uh, qualified to deal with matters of state. Then again, you look at Republicans uh, from the South in particular, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene is a member of Congress from Georgia. Uh, Tommy Tuberville, the former football coach of Auburn is a Senator from uh, Alabama. It's not clear that uh, some of these people have a clear understanding of what the constitution says about anything. Um, So, uh, there's certainly precedent for uh, the South going with, uh, let us call him a wild card like Herschel Walker, but, you know, he has strewn obstacles in his own path. And it's also we may be dealing here with incumbency. Uh, Raphael Warnock is an incumbent and Brian Kemp is an incumbent and there are un- undoubted advantages to incumbency. Yeah, although, you know, Warnock has only been there for uh uh, a year, you know, a year and a half. Uh, yeah, but it's still on his line. It says his occupation is it, U.S. It senator from Georgia. It, it does. Whereas Kemp, as governor, really can do things that uh, directly affect Georgians more, yeah. dire- certainly more so than any senator could. And so that is that is definitely uh, an advantage. And you know, it's it given that he overwhelmingly won the Republican primary. Uh, it's 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 pretty clear that the even Trumpian Republicans in that state uh, will probably turn out and vote for him. So it's it's on the margins that uh, the Stacey Abrams has to you know uh, persuade and 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 win if she's to carry the state. I I learned today something I did not know about Georgia. Georgia has motor voter registration. People are automatically registered to vote in Georgia by the DMV when they renew their driver's license. And the result is that almost all eligible voters in Georgia are registered. So the challenge there is no longer getting people to jump through the hoops of what it takes to get registered in some other states. It's getting people who have not voted in the past to cast ballots in this election. And that, of course, is what Stacey Abrams has dedicated herself to over the last uh, decade, expanding the electorate. 
And what Georgia Republicans have dedicated themselves to over the last decade is shrinking the electorate by throwing tens of thousands of registered voters off the rolls because they hadn't voted or for some other obscure obscure fact masquerading as an infraction. That's in many ways why Stacey Abrams lost to Brian Kemp yeah. in 2018. So, you know, it requires the kind of ongoing work that Stacey Abrams and the organization she set up to keep people on the rolls. Uh, that's an essential part of any democratic strategy in Georgia. Then I want to talk about your new piece at prospect.org reporting on some new research on the politics of corporate CEOs. I've always thought that the business elite used to be overwhelmingly Republican, but that since Trump, they've become less so, as the Republicans have now become more the party of working class white nationalists. The corporate elite has become more engaged with gender equality and racial justice, democratic issues. Am I right about that? Not entirely. The uh, uh, survey came out late last month from the National Bureau of Economic Research, NBER, which is an organization of uh, essentially economics professors that is well known for being non-ideological. Uh, they matched uh, uh, the leading corporate executives whose corporations are on the S&P 1500 with their known voter registrations. And what they came up with is that uh, while in 2008, 63% of those uh, corporate leaders were registered Republicans, by uh, 2020, it had gone up 68%. Now, I should say, and this is not in the article, that it was uh, higher than 68% in 2016 when Trump and Hillary Clinton were on the ballot. And then after four years of Trump, it did go down a little, but it's still five points higher than it was uh, at the point at which uh, Barack Obama became president, which means more CEOs and their ilk are uh, uh, self-declared Republicans now than, than was the case 15 years ago. Trump notwithstanding. Trump notwithstanding. Even when corporations are exhibiting what the right terms as woke behavior, uh, being more concerned about uh, LGBTQ rights and uh, abortion rights and uh, uh, gender and racial equity, the, the number who actually are taking pro-worker stances uh, in their own universe, uh, you can still count on the fingers of one hand. Even the ones who are pro-woke aren't necessarily pro-worker. The ones who are necessarily pro-woke are not necessarily pro-worker. There you go. Excellent. A little too long for a bumper sticker. <laughs> so big picture in American politics today. Go back to 2021, January 2021, when the new Congress took office and Biden took office. We thought this country was headed down the path to democratic socialism. We had Biden endorsing a lot of Bernie Sanders proposals, especially about advancing economic equality. And look where we are now. We live in a country where Congress is paralyzed, mostly by the filibuster in the Senate, where the president is lethargic. Uh, and where the new Supreme Court majority is the only active part of government transforming the country radically according to a far-right ideology. Is this, is this too gloomy a view of where we are right now? It's too gloomy a reality. It's not too gloomy a view. No, I mean, it's the court 
that is doing the legislating right now. It's certainly not Congress. It's certainly not Biden. You know, and this is the result of the Republicans focusing on the court and doing everything they can to uh, block the, the basic notion of, you know, majority rule. You know, in, in the much, to put it mildly, much quoted uh, all men are created equal passage of, uh, of the Declaration of Independence, if you go down a couple lines, it says that governments derive their just power from the consent of the governed. That's what's really kind of uh, uh, at stake here. Uh, and I think we need to quote the declaration down a couple more lines because the consent of the governed isn't there in the direction that the Republicans are, are now pushing the nation. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Good to be here, John. the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. With the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade, abortion access for tens of millions of women and girls may soon be a matter of the past in the 26 states that are certain or likely to ban abortion now. For women of means in those states who can travel and pay for childcare, the loss of Roe will be disruptive. But for many poor women, particularly poor women of color, the loss will be deadly. For comment, we turn to Michelle Goodwin. She's Chancellor's Professor of Law at the University of California, Irvine, where she's also founder and director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy and its Reproductive Justice Initiative. She's been published in the New York Times, Politico, The Atlantic, and The Nation. And she's host and executive producer of the podcast On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin. She's also author of the book, Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood. Michelle Goodwin, welcome back. It's always a pleasure to join you in conversation. Well, thank you. So let's start by noting that support for abortion has never been higher the percentage of Americans identifying as pro-choice this month was the highest it's been since 1995, while only 30% of Americans identified as pro-life, the lowest since 1995. That's from the Gallup poll. So we are speaking for the great majority of Americans. That's right. The overwhelming majority of Americans support bodily autonomy, privacy, they reject a state enforcing involuntary servitude with one's body. Interestingly enough, our Congress has rejected that in that we have no draft, not even for the protection of our nation at times of war. Will we as a nation surrender young people's bodies, young men's bodies, into involuntary servitude? Um, it will not be legislated. Right. We, we no longer will will do that. So this is a grave irony that we see in this instance, that there are states that are willing to impose involuntary servitude on 10 year old girls, 12 year old girls to carry out their political agendas. Pregnancy and delivery have always been dangerous, especially for black and brown women. The end of Roe will make that worse. Tell us a little about that. 
That's right. So already the United States is ranked as the deadliest place in all of the industrialized world. We rank 55th overall, not in league with peer nations such as Germany or France, um, Italy, Sweden, wherever. Instead, the United States is in company of nations that publicly stone women, that publicly lash them, that uh, are not in company with women being able to drive cars, et cetera. I mean, that's, that's the company that we keep. If we drill down in terms of what this means at the more localized levels, it's grave. In Mississippi, a Black woman is 118 times more likely to die by carrying a pregnancy to term than by having an abortion. According to Mississippi's own data, 80% of the cardiac deaths during pregnancy are Black women. Black women do not make up 80% of the female population in that state. States like Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi are the deadliest places in all of the industrialized world for a woman to be pregnant. And even the Supreme Court in 2016 made note that a woman is 14 times more likely to die by carrying a pregnancy to term in the U.S. than by having an abortion. And now we are turning to an era of widespread criminalization in the anti-abortion states where women and girls who seek abortions through medication or even by traveling out of state may face, will face civil and criminal punishments. Um, and this new post-Roe era will be marked, therefore, by greater surveillance of pregnant women and the development of laws and practices and policies to justify watching and policing women's bodies. That's absolutely right. Um, this is what's at the forefront. And in fact, these are states that are well-practiced in it. And I think that's an important point for us not to ignore. These are states that are still tethered to seeing the uh, punishment of black and brown women. They've never really lost the taste of it. And it's never been where they've had to account for it. Here I'm talking about legacies of slavery and Jim Crow, now the new Jane Crow, that remain with us. There are times in which I think many Americans think that that's all in the past. And what they don't account for is to think, well, did Mississippi ever apologize for what it did to Black women? Did Mississippi ever apologize for slavery? Did Mississippi ever apologize for denying Black people the right to vote, denying Black women equal access to education, to housing, to all of these things that it resisted even in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, all of that. And now these states are well-equipped because they practiced it so well how to criminalize and punish. Um, civil fines, criminal penalties are what we'll be seeing in states like Alabama, Mississippi, Texas. We already know with its SB8 law opening the doors for random individuals to sue individuals who aid a person in the termination of a pregnancy. And now we have state lawmakers saying that they want to go not only after those who want an abortion or who help them achieve an abortion, but they also want to make attacks against contraception, um, contraceptive access. So things will get much worse for pregnant women in those 26 states, but also for doctors and pharmacists and clinic staffers and volunteers and, and friends and family members. 
That's absolutely right. In fact, just a week ago, I was at the American Constitution Society's annual convention. And joining me as I moderated the plenary panel uh, was a person who uh, works with the team to provide help and support for teenage girls. And she cried, you know, it reached a point in the plenary where she just cried in concern for her staff, um, staff who care so much about helping vulnerable people, vulnerable girls in Texas, but who now face the threat of criminal sanction if they do what we what Americans otherwise want them to do, which is to help teenage girls who feel trapped, who've been raped, who've been the victims of incest, and who want to have information and who want, um, in many instances, to be able to terminate the pregnancies um, that they have. You're an ACLU leader, chair of the board of the ACLU of Southern California Foundation. Disclosure, I'm a member of that board. And of course, the ACLU has been a leader in the fight for abortion rights. Recently, the organization announced a new campaign with the slogan, End Forced Pregnancy, in policies that force people to remain pregnant and give birth instead of making their own decisions about whether to continue a pregnancy or have an abortion. Gia Tolentino wrote a powerful piece in The New Yorker pointing out what all of this really means in the Supreme Court majority ruling. If you are impregnated by another person under any circumstance, you have a legal and moral duty to undergo pregnancy delivery and in all likelihood, two decades or more of caregiving no matter the permanent and potentially devastating consequences for your body, your mind, your family, your ability to put food on the table, your plans for your own life. You have written in the New York Times that this kind of forced pregnancy has a long history in America, going back for the Civil War, when it was a central part of the system of slave labor and that you've written the, how the constitutional amendments that prohibited slavery and guaranteed equal protection also addressed forced pregnancy. Tell us about that history. They did. So that history is, is inscribed in our DNAs of African-Americans in the United States. There was recently a study done between 23andMe and uh, other organizations published in the New York Times that revealed um, something that was stunning for a lot of people, but not for African-Americans. And that is the very high rate and ratio of European ancestry in African-Americans directly tied to white male lineage. And what is revealed in laws, some of the earliest laws in the United States in the 1600s were laws that protected white men against the rape of black women. That specifically inscribed in law that children that were born to enslaved black women by white men would take on the status of their mothers as being property and enslaved. And what this did is it provided a mechanism for capitalism, but it also provided a mechanism for sexual assault, uh, for rapes, and for involuntary reproductive servitude. 
This was no mystery. It was written about prolifically in newspapers of record. What I cite in my New York Times article is even the New York Times running stories in the 1800s about this, specifically using the language about Black people being bred as animals. This was something that Sojourner Truth famously spoke to. It's something that members of Congress wrote about at the time. The framers of the 13th and 14th Amendments made speeches about this. So there was no mystery about this. And this all makes it all the more stunning when the United States Supreme Court makes claims under the auspices and umbrellas of originalism and textualism that there was nothing original in the Constitution that made reference to reproduction when, in fact, the 13th Amendment abolished not only slavery, but involuntary servitude. And it was absolutely clear for centuries that the involuntary servitude of Black women was not only in the cotton fields, but it was also underneath the weight of white and Black men that they were forced to be bed with and then to have children who would later be sold off as property or used as chattel in the fields. So getting back to the present, even after losing constitutional protections for abortion, there's still lots of work to be done around abortion rights. One of the biggest ones is, has been the rule of the, that was in effect for years, a rule by the FDA that required patients seeking the abortion pill uh, to pick up the pill in person at a mes- medical facility. The ACLU litigated for years to abolish this requirement and finally has won a federal lawsuit. And now the FDA has permanently repealed the in-person dispensing requirement for the abortion pill. How important is that? It is a very significant victory. It is a victory that now liberalizes the ability to receive what is safe medication. In fact, in the safest forms of medication that we have. And so let me just underscore that the World Health Organization has compared uh, legal abortion to the safety of a penicillin shot. And I think to put all of this in context, During um, COVID, a period of time in which the Trump administration again tried to politicize um, abortion access, pills that could be used for the termination of pregnancy were singled out. There are 22,000 medications that people could receive by mail. And this was the only one that was singled out that individuals could not receive by mail. And so the ACLU's fight in this regard to make sure that this very important um, healthcare um, can be received without a woman or girl or person who become pregnant, uh, without having to go to a clinic or go to a hospital, uh, is fundamentally important. There's no reason why women should be singled out for this extra legal burden uh, when other medications don't come with that extra legal burden. And there's lots of other work to be done, especially in the upcoming midterms where governors are a key line of defense um, to preserve abortion rights in states that have not prohibited or severely restricted abortion. Uh, And this is true, of course, in the battleground states that already have Republican legislatures. 
like Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, states that will also be crucial, of course, in 2024. So very high among our priorities right now are in Wisconsin, re-elect Tony Evers governor. In Michigan, re-elect Gretchen Whitmer governor. In Pennsylvania, elect Josh Shapiro governor. And in Georgia, elect Stacey Abrams governor. What else is on your political to-do list? Well, what's very important is that we have uh, the immediate in terms of midterm elections, but also this is an opportunity for us to think about a true North Star, a third reconstruction where we can imagine beyond just the immediate response to Dobbs or this whole Supreme Court term to think about broader arcs of justice that are demanded for this time. If we can imagine that in 1865 and then following in 1868 and then after that, um, the 13th and 14th and 15th Amendments as being the nation's first reconstruction and it was, and then account for 1964 with the Civil Rights Act and 65 with the Voting Rights Act as our second reconstruction. Well, now I think that we are realizing after an attempted coup against our government, uh, and then after a Supreme Court acting in such illegitimate ways against the most vulnerable of Americans, that now is time for thinking about a third reconstruction and what should be a part of that. Well, I think key to that will be the full ratification of the ERA. I don't think we have to wait for a, for a third reconstruction for that, but I think that that can be on the path to it. And I think that centering the lives of women and girls should be fundamental to that, along with remembering what was so important and the business yet undone in terms of racial justice, but also thinking about LGBTQ equality and making sure that that is safeguarded into the future, and also disability justice as well. That's just to scratch the surface. And I think that we have to be broad-minded. We have to think about environmental protections uh, and so much more as being part of our third reconstruction and truly moving towards those arcs of justice that are laid out in our Constitution. It's time for our third reconstruction. Michelle Goodwin is Chancellor's Professor of Law at the University of California, Irvine, author of the book Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood. She also hosts and produces the podcast On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin. You can listen on Apple Podcasts. Thank you, Michelle. This was great. Thank you so much, John. A pleasure to be with you. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. How will the war in Ukraine end? Or at least, how can we get to a stable ceasefire in Ukraine? For comment, we turn to Anatole Levin. He wrote the book, Ukraine and Russia. He's a senior fellow of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. His writing has appeared in Jacobin, The Financial Times, The American Prospect, and The Nation. Anatole Levin, welcome back. Hello, thank you so much for asking me. 
Well, the Soviet invasions of Hungary in 56 and Czechoslovakia in 68 ended with the Russians installing new satellite governments there. That seems to have been something like Putin's plan for Ukraine back in February. But of course, the fierce Ukrainian resistance, which surprised all of us, made that impossible. On the other hand, the announced goal of the Ukrainian foreign minister right now, complete and total victory of Ukraine, seems equally impossible. So how will this war end? Well, how do other wars end in the absence of unconditional surrender? Wars end with negotiated ceasefire agreements. And one answer that a lot of people give is that at this point, it's up to the Ukrainian government to decide when to move toward negotiations. It's their country, so it should be their decision. At least that's what a lot of our friends uh, are arguing. What do you think about leaving it up to the Ukrainians? Well, in the end, of course, the Ukrainian government has to agree to any peace settlement if there isn't any peace settlement. That's obvious. But I think there are a number of things that we really need to keep in mind. The first is that, of course, the defeat of Russia's attempt to capture Kiev and create a new satellite state of Ukraine uh, was defeated by Ukrainian courage and grit. Uh, but it was also defeated by huge amounts of Western weaponry. And it is Western weaponry and financial aid, uh, which is keeping the Ukraine Ukrainian resistance going. Without that, the Ukrainians would be defeated. Obviously, that makes us parties to this conflict and therefore gives us a right to a say in its solution. The other point there is that, of course, as a result of the war, but also very much as a result of the sanctions that we have imposed, through the war we are incurring very, very large risks for the world economy in general for the actual physical survival of tens or even hundreds of millions of people around the world, you know, who are dependent on cheap wheat imports, which of course have been greatly interrupted by the war. And of course, this brings with it also the threat of tremendous instability in various parts of the world. If you look at the genesis of the Syrian civil war in 2011, which had so much to do with bread shortages, but also, of course, really severe uh, risks of economic recession in the West. So, I mean, this too gives us not just the right, but also I would say the responsibility to play a role in trying to bring about a peace settlement. Now, the other point to be made there is that it is very evident from the extremely contradictory messages coming out of the Ukrainian government, and indeed everything we know about the whole Ukrainian peace setup, that the Ukrainian political elites are not united. That President Zelensky's previous offers of a peace settlement were bitterly attacked within Ukraine by more extremist, not just forces outside his government, you know, the extreme nationalists, the Azov regiment and so forth, but also figures within his government. So you see, by saying that we must leave this up to the Ukrainians, it's not just that it puts a critical aspect of American foreign policy and American interests, basically hands this over to the Ukrainian government. It's much worse than that, because it actually hands it over to Ukrainian extremists who are in a position to blackmail 
the Ukrainian government. Now, you know, I don't wish to raise unnecessary hackles on other issues, but I think I think we can say that we've seen this before in the Middle East, right? Yes. You know, yes. where where an extremist minority manages to hijack not just its government policy, but American policy as well, and actually then goes on to make peace impossible. None of this is to, to say that, you know, we must abandon Ukraine, uh, but we do have a right to, to make concrete proposals. The Ukrainians say they want the return of territories held by Russia since 2014. That is Crimea and those parts of the eastern Donbass. Is that a realistic goal of a, of a peace settlement? Well, here you see is somewhere where the Ukrainian messages have been contradictory because earlier in, in the Russian invasion, the official proposal from the Ukrainian government, which is it, it's still there on, on the Ukrainian presidential website, proposals of 28th of March, where quite different. It was that Russia must withdraw from all the new territory that it's conquered since the, the beginning of the war on the 24th of February, but that the, the issues of the lands occupied or supported by Russia since 2014, in other words, Crimea and Eastern Donbass, should be essentially shelved for future diplomatic negotiation. And that in the meantime, both sides should make a commitment not you know, to take unilateral action, either military or economic, to, to try to force a, a solution of these. That, in my view, was very sensible. It was pointing the way basically to, to what I think was the, the best that you can probably hope for, which is something like the Cyprus situation where, you know, ever since the Turks invaded and set up this separatist Republic of Northern Cyprus in 1974, you've had endless negotiations about reunification of the island. Now, they've never actually led anywhere, um, but equally there hasn't been a resumption, you know, of the war. That was the, the then Ukrainian proposal. Now, since then, from the Ukrainian foreign minister, for example, you've had uh, positions which completely contradict that, which say, no, Ukraine has to reconquer all the land, as you say, which Russia has held since 2014. Now, that means basically taking back Crimea and the Russian naval base of Sevastopol. Now, in, in a conversation with a Ukrainian diplomat at which I was present, it was pointed out that Russia will fight indefinitely to prevent the loss of Crimea, both because of the, the strategic, but also the emotional importance of Sevastopol, but also because, of course, according to the Russians, this is now Russian sovereign territory. And I mean, by most accounts, a large majority of the population of Crimea wants to be part of Russia. So when this Ukrainian diplomat was told that this means you know, a war lasting 20 years, he, he replied, yes, uh, yes, we will fight for 20 years, you know, to, to, to recover this territory. Well, I think the answer to that is fine. If you want to fight for 20 years, by all means, I mean, we can't stop you. Uh, but are we bound to support you for 20 years in order to achieve this goal? If we think that the wider risks and damage to the world from this are not actually worth it, A, and B, but maybe it's not a question of fighting for 20 years. Maybe it's a question of fighting for 100 years and still not getting it back. Okay, how about the goal of Russian withdrawal from the territory it has occupied since the start of the invasion, Zelensky's March proposal? How can the Russian government be persuaded to 
To agree to that, doesn't this require offering Russia something that Putin can use to claim that a peace settlement represents some kind of success for Russia? Well, that, that's absolutely correct. And I mean, this is a, a point that I think has been very well made by Henry Kissinger, of course, not necessarily all our favorite statesmen, yes. but, but a man of undoubted, you know, intelligence and, and realism, and pragmatism. No, I mean, Putin has to be given some kind of success. And I think, I mean, the answer there is, if you go back to the original Russian demands, now, it's quite true, of course, that there were wider Russian goals that they aimed at but didn't achieve. Now, I mean, if they don't get a peace settlement, then there are wider territorial goals. But it's, you know, in diplomatic negotiation, it's not just advisable, it is actually necessary to start with the official positions of the other side. Now, if you go back to the Russian official positions, they were recognition uh, of Russian sovereignty, a treaty of neutrality. Now that Zelensky already offered. And, and he's, as he said, President Zelensky said absolutely openly and absolutely correctly, look, I went to NATO before the war and NATO governments. And I said, can you guarantee to me that within five years, you know, we will receive an offer uh, of NATO membership? And they all said, no, 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 sorry, no, can't do that. So he said, look, why not then a treaty of neutrality with suitable guarantees? So, okay, that's the first. On the other issues, leave aside denazification. I think since the Russians captured Mariupol and to a great extent wiped out the Azov regiment, I think the Russians can say that's achieved. Demilitarization, actually you've heard Russians saying, if we have no Western bases in Ukraine and no long range missiles, we can count that as demilitarization. And then that brings us to the territorial issues, which of course are the most difficult ones. Putin wants Ukrainian and Western recognition of Russian sovereignty over Crimea and Ukrainian and Western recognition of the independence of these recently declared separatist republics of, what are they, Donetsk and Luhansk. How is that going to be possible? Well, it seems to me that the, the, the answer here is, as by the way we did in the case of Kosovo, and as we have, you know, in effect in other cases as well, and not necessarily very happy ones, but Southern Sudan, Kashmir, even Northern Ireland viewed from a, a certain Irish perspective, certainly, which is to say to move away from strict legalism, whatever legalism is, towards a search for a pragmatic settlement, but which will also save the face of both sides. Now, it seems to me that here is the critical answer, that if we can give Putin a paper victory over territories that in fact Russia has held since 2014 and Ukraine is very unlikely to get back, then that it seems to me is the only way that we can give Putin enough not to take you know, the large additional territories that Russia has, uh, has conquered. And then you get into the business of, you know, how can we give this cover, you know, both cover to save the, save the face of the West and, and Ukraine, but also some kind of democratic cover and cover under international law. And here, I have to say, my solution is something which, although we've talked about, we talked about it endlessly in the case of Kosovo, strangely enough, almost nobody in the West ever talks about in the case of Crimea and the Donbass, which is ask the local people, ask them, yes, yes. have another referendum, 
you know, under United Nations supervision and ask them. Now, in Crimea, it's relatively straightforward because Crimea is a unitary area and large majority, it seems, for membership of Russia. Donbass is much more complicated because Russia recognized the independence of the Donbass on the whole territory of the two regions. But contrary to every military expectation, Russia has not even conquered the whole territory of the Don. The separatist republics only covered about a third of the territory, partly because Russia did not give, give them full military support. If Russia had given them full military support, in 2014, 2015, they would have taken half Ukraine. They didn't. So, you know, Russia was willing to compromise on that then. Then Russia recognizes their independence on the whole territory of those uh, regions, but hasn't actually managed to conquer them. You know, it, it's now almost conquered the whole of uh, Lugansk, not totally. Um, but still, two, three fifths of, of Donetsk is in Ukrainian hands. So it seems to me, I mean, the only way out of this is, is also to have a a referendum or plebiscite, but on a district by district basis. And then my assumption is that the districts in eastern Donbass, which have after all been heavily bombarded by Ukraine for the past eight years, would vote to stay with Russia. And the areas that Russia has devastated, you know, since February, would mm -hmm. I find it hard to believe, you know, that many people in Severodonetsk or Mariupol are going to vote to go with Russia after what's been done to them. You know, would vote to stay with Ukraine, and then you can basically have a, a pragmatic division of the territory. Now, the other reason why I advocate this is that look, supposing in an ideal world Ukraine could reconquer these territories. What then? I mean, uh, massive repression, you know, the arrest of all the people, presumably, who have sided with Russia uh, in these areas, and possibly ethnic cleansing, which after all is what happened in Kosovo. We gave cover to the ethnic cleansing of the Serbian minority in Kosovo. Now, maybe that was inevitable. The, the point is, you also have to think, how in God's name is Ukraine going to be able to govern these territories, yeah. you know, without <clears throat> the kind of action which will both, you know, frankly, discredit Western support for Ukraine, but also will so utterly infuriate the Russians that it will, you know, basically turn this into a hundred years war. We need a, a, a settlement that will actually end this war. You have argued that the key to Ukraine achieving its goal of integration into Europe is to move towards a, what you call a civic nationalism rather than an ethnic nationalism. Explain that. It's very evident that there are two principal strains of Ukrainian nationalism. And one of them is the strain represented by Zelensky, who, of course, as we all know, is Russian-speaking Jew by origin and very much represents this, this strain or tradition of Ukrainian nationalism. The other, of course, they overlap. It's not clear. These things are never completely clear cut. But it is very evident that the kind of um, nationalism represented, for example, by the Azov regiment or Svoboda, I mean, I don't want to get into the question of whether they're neo-Nazis or fascists, but what is absolutely obvious is that they are absolutely down the line ethnic nationalists with a version of Ukrainian nationalism that is you know, mono-ethnic, monocultural, monolinguistic. This is the Ukrainian identity. Other people may be tolerated, but only tolerated. They have no, no recognized role in the Ukrainian state. That, it seems to me, is a wrong in itself. We shouldn't be supporting this kind of nationalism. 
but B, B um, it would create tremendous obstacles to something that the Ukrainians now for the first time have a, a genuine chance of, which is joining the European Union. Because in the words of an EU official to me, the last thing we want in Europe is any more Polands and Hungarys. <laughs> okay. In conclusion here, you are arguing that the war in Ukraine right now has become a struggle over very limited amounts of territory. We've seen many conflicts like this in the last many decades, and they have been open to negotiated ceasefires. And difficult as it seems, that has to be the road for Ukraine now. That, that is my position precisely. I strongly supported Western support for Ukrainian independence against the Russian attempt to capture Kiev and install a new Ukrainian government, as you said, like Czechoslovakia or Hungary. I supported Western sanctions against Russia to that end. But that goal of, of maintaining Ukrainian independence has been achieved. The question now becomes, you know, how much we are prepared to do. And it may, in practice, it isn't uh, about Crimea or Donetsk or Lugansk, because I don't think the Ukrainians will get this back. We are essentially talking about Mariupol and half a dozen other smaller towns. Now, I'm sorry, but then you do get into the, the, the question of just how much we are prepared to sacrifice and just what risks we're prepared to run for the world for control over these small territories, especially if there is any, any chance of a peace agreement, which remember, if Ukraine makes an agreement which in effect gives up Crimea and uh, the Eastern Donbass, Ukraine has lost nothing since the beginning of the invasion because Russia held those territories already. So we are making essentially a paper concession in return for um, an end to this conflict. And of course, the final thing to say is I talked about the effect on the world economy. We must also keep in mind, of course, the dreadful effects on Ukraine and the fact that as long as the war goes on, Ukraine cannot join the European Union. So there are massive Ukrainian arguments as well in favor of a, a reasonable compromise. Anatole Levin, he wrote about a peace settlement in Ukraine for The Nation. You can read him at thenation.com. Anatole, thanks so much for talking with us today. It was a pleasure. Thank you. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.